Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It's good to be back in the Word of God once again with you. Today we are heading to Daniel 2. We are looking at one of the key sections in the book of Daniel. I'm going to throw out a lot of information. Try to stick with me the best you can. Bible's open to Daniel 2 when we start again with verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. History records that one night in 1883, the very tired editor of the New England Farmer's Almanac 
He closed his desk and he prepared to leave. He had predicted the weather conditions for every day of the coming year except for July the 13th, but he figured he could do it in the morning. Well, that evening, an errand boy working at the office arrived with a message for him, and the printer's deadline had been moved up and the completed copy of the almanac needed to go out on the next train. The editor was tired, so he just told this young office boy to put in something suitable for July the 13th, but, quote, don't bother him because he was tired. Well, when the finished copies came out, the editor was a little worried about the sales. These things didn't have a huge profit margin, and he happened to look at what the young boy had put in for their prediction of the 13th of July. It read, wind, hail, and snow. The editor was in a fit of rage. He called in the office boy. The boy explained that he just thought that that type of weather would be nice and completely unusual for July. There was nothing the editor could do. He figured this could be the end of the farmer's almanac. He figured he'd be the joke of the state and that he would be bankrupt. But on the morning of July the 13th of 1884, wind, hail, and snow did descend upon New England. And by this one prediction, the almanac became both famous and successful, all because an office boy made a wild guess about snow in July. Now, what we have before us is most certainly not a wild guess about what will come in the future. The prophecy before us in Daniel is so precise, it will cause you to have one of two reactions. Either it will build your confidence and trust in God, or it will cause you to look for some other explanation for the words recorded in this text. Early in the 20th century, liberal theologians said there was no way that Daniel wrote this book 600 years before the birth of Christ. Because of the accuracy of this text, their assumption was that someone could only write these words after all these kingdoms were already in place. So someone had to write it when the Romans were already in power. Therefore, based entirely upon conjecture, they said it was written about a hundred years before Jesus by a Maccabean scribe who took the name Daniel. Now, you can believe whoever you want to believe, but I'm going to stick with Jesus on this one, because in Matthew 24, Jesus himself even spoke of that which was written by the prophet Daniel. Also keep in mind that when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the late 1940s, a portion of the book of Daniel was found that dated back long before the first century B.C., meaning Daniel was not written after these events unfolded on the pages of history. Now think back with me to where we were in our study. King Nebuchadnezzar desperately wanted to understand this dream, but what he didn't realize was how much of the future would be revealed to him. We saw last time in verse 19 that the dream was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Keep in mind, Daniel is standing before the king, and Daniel now lays out for the king the dream he had. Not that the king didn't already know, but to prove to the king that Daniel indeed had the correct interpretation. Take a look at our first few verses, starting with verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. 
Now, the dream itself was pretty straightforward. Verse 31 tells us that it was a great statue. And literally, the wording tells us by saying it was a great image that it was very, very large. Also notice in verse 31 that the text states its splendor was excellent. Wording conveys the idea that it was bright, that it was shiny. And we'll see in a little bit that the statue in the dream was made of different kinds of metal. So this is what Daniel was referring to when he said that it was shiny. Notice at the end of the verse, the text says its appearance or form was awesome. The word for awesome means to make afraid, to cause fear. This statue was terrifying, which explains part of the reason why Nebuchadnezzar was so upset and so determined to get an accurate interpretation. Verses 32 and 33 tell us of the different materials that made up the statue. And as Nebuchadnezzar was standing there in his dream, just looking up and down at the statue, he would have been able to see very clearly that it was made up of different materials. Now, we'll get to the interpretation of what the different metals meant in a minute. But for now, I want you to notice that the statue starts out with fine gold for the head. Then the chest and arms are made of silver. The belly and thighs were made of bronze. And notice as we work our way down from the head, the value of the metal was less. Gold is worth more than silver. Silver is worth more than bronze. But the strength of the metal increases as you make your way from the head to the legs. Verse 33 tells us the legs were made of iron and the feet were made of part iron and part clay. But keep in mind that the clay being referred to here in the text is a reference to hard-baked clay, like clay that had been baked into pottery. So the idea for the feet is that they were made of hard, durable iron and hard, brittle clay. Part of the feet were strong and part was brittle. Now, the interesting thing about this statue was that the heavy material was at the top and the lightest material was at the bottom in the feet. The baked clay that made up part of the feet was weak. So here was this statue, top heavy and weak in the feet. Then all of a sudden, a stone comes racing in and strikes the feet. Notice in verse 34, Daniel said that the stone was cut out without hands. Now, that means that the stone was not made by a man without human hands. This is God doing this. But in the dream, when the stone comes flying in, it hits the feet and crushes them. Then the rest of the statue was top-heavy. So without feet, it all collapses all at the same time and is blown away, just like the chaff from the threshing floors. Keep in mind, in that culture, this would have been a common sight to see these threshing floors, which were used to separate chaff from the rest of the wheat by lifting it in the air so the wind would blow away the chaff. Everyone in that day would have been able to understand what was meant. So the idea here is that nothing would be left of the statue. All the metal sections of the statue would be discarded like worthless chaff and scattered into the wind. But the stone, it became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And we remember that in Scripture, a mountain is often a metaphor for a kingdom. Now let's read the entire interpretation of the dream again, starting with verse 36. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces 
and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. The statue was a representation of the Gentile kingdoms that would rule over the land of Israel and the people of Israel. We'll see later on in chapter 7, these empires are also represented as four great beasts. The first empire was represented in the dream as the head of gold. Daniel describes this in verses 37 and 38. Nebuchadnezzar, as the king, was the head of the Babylonian empire. And really in this passage, he is described in verse 38 as the head of gold. Now, I think there's actually two probable reasons why Babylon was represented as gold. First of all, their chief god that they worshipped was Marduk, and he was referred to as the god of gold. And secondly, in Babylon, they used gold on everything. On their statues, their shrines, even walls and buildings were covered with gold. Babylon at that time was the ruling nation of the world. Nebuchadnezzar's father had come to power in Babylon by military conquest. He really built a large part of the empire and fought his way into power. But the contrast here is in verse 37, where Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, You are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. Nebuchadnezzar is directly confronted with the truth that the God of the Jews had put him into power. Not that Nebuchadnezzar should be boasting in his own greatness or trusting in his false gods, but the God of the Jews, the one true God, had put him into power. Now, the references in verse 38 to wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, the text states that he, meaning God, God gave them over to his hand to rule over all. Now, obviously, Nebuchadnezzar didn't rule over every single person on the planet, but the reference instead is that he was the most powerful man in charge of the most powerful nation on the earth, and his kingdom did spread over the most important part of the world in that day. The prophet Jeremiah had already warned the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon that God had given Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty over the land of the earth, even including the animals. Listen to what Jeremiah warned in Jeremiah 27, starting with verse 6. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beasts of the field I have also given him to serve him. So all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes. And then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them. 
Nebuchadnezzar had absolute control over his kingdom. His word was the law of the land. And it is for this reason he is described as a king of kings. But it was the God of heaven who had given him the power, the strength, and the glory. It took great courage for Daniel to speak this way to the king. But Daniel was determined to speak the truth because he feared God more than an earthly king. Nebuchadnezzar ruled for about 45 years from 605 to 560 BC, and his empire only lasted another 21 years after his death. Now, verse 39 gives us a short summary of the next two kingdoms. It's absolutely critical to keep in mind that chapter 2 is not the only place that we are getting our information from. Comparing scripture with scripture, Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8 gives us a lot more information. Daniel chapter 8 verse 20 specifically names by name the second kingdom as belonging to the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel 8.21 named the third kingdom by name that it would be Greece. In other words, we don't have to guess about Babylon, Medo-Persia, or Greece because all three are directly named in the word of God. So as we work our way through chapter 2, remind yourself that some of the details will be filled in for us as we make our way through Daniel. Now first in verse 39, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar that there would arise another kingdom inferior to his. This was represented in the statue with the chest and arms of silver. This was the rise of the Medes and Persians. Medo-Persia had an extensive tax system and silver was the common medium of exchange. Led by Cyrus the Great, they conquered the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C. and made what we call the Medo-Persian Empire. They even had more land than Babylonia, and their kingdom lasted longer. It lasted until 331 B.C. The two different arms most likely represent the twofold division of Medea and Persia, who united to defeat Babylon. Notice in verse 39 that Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that this next empire would be inferior to his. In the statue, King Nebuchadnezzar was represented as the gold. This Medo-Persian empire was silver. Now this corresponds with the notion that they were inferior to Babylon. They were inferior in that they were not as well organized as a nation. And they really lacked the leadership that Babylon had. So in that aspect, they were inferior but also recognize even though silver is inferior to gold, it's also stronger. This was the case with the Medo-Persians. They lasted over twice as long as a nation, and they had a stronger military than Babylon did. Now the progression continues with the third nation. The last half of verse 39 just simply teaches that this third nation would rule over all the earth and represented the bronze part of the statue. On the statue, it was the Grecian Empire that represented the belly portion and the thighs. Once again, notice the progression. Bronze is not as precious as gold. Under the leadership of Alexander the Great, Greece was extremely disorganized and lacked any central leadership. But again, bronze is stronger than even silver, and Greece was even a larger empire than the two before it. But after Alexander died, the empire split into four parts, with four of his generals each taking leadership over part of the empire. The Greek armies used bronze quite a bit in their weapons of war. Now verse 40 takes us to the fourth kingdom. It is the only kingdom not identified to us directly in Daniel, 
but I want you to keep in mind that every kingdom so far has been a literal kingdom ruled by kings, and they have followed after one another in direct progression in history. And I really do not see how there can be any question at all that the fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire. The legs were the fourth empire, and this portion of the statue was made out of iron. Iron was stronger than all the other metals mentioned. This empire was Rome. It was Rome that conquered the Greeks. This is why verse 40 refers to iron crushing all things. Rome literally crushed a land that was controlled by the previous nations. The Roman troops actually wore armor made out of iron, and they were known and referred to as the Iron Legions of Rome. So what you have is Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, all in one statue, which suggests the idea that it was all a part of God's plan for mankind, a time when the Gentiles rule over the Jewish people. Now, don't miss the importance of Luke 21, 24, where Jesus proclaimed, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The Lord Jesus himself taught about the times of the Gentiles over the nation of Israel, and it's very, very fitting that this statue depicted the Roman Empire as making up two legs. The Roman Empire lasted for hundreds of years. The western portion fell in 476 AD, and the eastern part did not fall until 1453 AD. Keep in mind that at its height, the Roman Empire included almost all of Europe, including Spain, the British Isles, as well as India. Now, before we move into verses 41 through 43, there's a few things that we need to keep in mind. First, remember that as we have gone down this statue from the head towards the feet, the further down you go, the more time has passed. Also remember that the toes, the reference to the toes in verse 41, it corresponds to the ten horns in chapter 7. The reference here with the toes is to the revived Roman Empire that will rule in the final days of the Gentiles ruling over Israel. These verses mention the mixture of clay and iron. It's a simple fact that these two materials do not mix. Even if you melt them down, they still stay separate. Once again, this is probably kiln-fired clay, brittle clay mixed with iron. This is the final form of the fourth kingdom. Notice Daniel did not tell us this is a fifth kingdom. It is the final form of the fourth kingdom. But it will not have the strength, the bond that the earlier kingdoms had. A lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to find the fulfillment of the feet and toes in history, but there has been nothing in history that adequately fulfills the prophecy of the feet and toes, especially with the Roman Empire as a literal kingdom. When we get to Daniel 9, the text is absolutely clear that God dealt with the nation of Israel for a period of 483 years. Then he put Israel on the shelf because the church has now taken center stage. God is not done with Israel. That is what Romans 9, 10, and 11 are all about. God still has a plan for Israel. His promises to Israel will be fulfilled. And they still have seven more years on the prophetic clock where God is going to take them through the tribulation. What I'm telling you is that we already know from Daniel that there is a break in time, a pause in the action, which is the church age. So it should not surprise us at all that we see this same thing here in Daniel 2. In the first part of the Roman Empire, the legs of the statue was fulfilled literally. And someday the Roman Empire will be revived to fulfill the feet and toes of this prophecy. Now the fourth empire fits Rome perfectly in every aspect. 
It succeeded Greece just like Medo-Persia succeeded Babylon. It fits all the prophecies except one basic fact. The feet and toes have not yet been fulfilled. We know from Daniel 7 that these ten toes are the ten kings that will rule when the Antichrist comes on the scene. And these kings haven't been fulfilled yet. Also keep in mind that down in verse 44, we will see the dream is referring to Christ, setting up his reign over the nations. So think this through. We already know that there is a pause in the action after the Roman Empire, simply because Christ has not physically established his kingdom. So the only thing we can conclude is that the feet and toes are yet to be fulfilled at the end of the church age, during the seven years of tribulation. Keep in mind that we see the Lord Jesus himself believe that a prophecy like this can be partially fulfilled at one point in history, and the rest of the prophecy can be fulfilled thousands of years later. Jot down Luke 4 and Isaiah 61. In Luke 4, Jesus was reading Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 deals with the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. When Jesus read the portion about his first advent, he actually quit reading mid-sentence and told them that this part of the prophecy had been fulfilled. But the second coming of Christ, the very next words on the page are to be fulfilled at least 2,000 years after his first coming. The legs themselves were made of iron, but only the feet and toes are mixed with clay meaning this latter form of the Roman Empire will not be as strong as the Roman Empire used to be. But also keep in mind, all of the other kingdoms were one type of metal from the beginning to the end. This fourth kingdom is all iron until you get to the feet. Then it's made up of iron and clay, meaning this fourth empire would exist at a later stage in history because the materials of this kingdom would change. Now, my understanding of the feet and toes is that the iron refers to the strength they will have with their military. But there will be division in this final stage of this kingdom as different groups of the world come together to try to form this empire. But they will not adhere together just as iron and clay do not combine with each other. The Antichrist is going to have some internal problems. <laughs> that makes me happy. He's going to have problems as he tries to bring together the people of different backgrounds under his rule. We also know based on this text and based on Daniel 7 that this final stage of the Roman Empire will be a confederation of several nations, which fits perfectly with Revelation 17.12. Listen to Revelation 17. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Revelation 17 all testify that this final stage of the Roman Empire will be made up of ten kingdoms that come together, and the Roman Empire never, ever consisted of a ten-nation confederation in history. And keep in mind that according to this prophecy, all ten toes of the statue, all ten sections of this confederation will be destroyed all at once, instantaneously, by Christ, which has not happened yet, which once again points us to a future fulfillment. The coming kingdom of God will arrive when the last stage of Rome, the revived Roman Empire, will be in existence. Now, verses 44 and 45 are extremely important to understand. They describe the final kingdom. It starts out by saying, in the days of these kings. Now, this is a reference to the ten toes in the statue, which represents the ten kings. They will rule in the final time of the Gentile Empire. 
Revelation 17.12 and Daniel 7.24 teach us that out of these ten kings, the Antichrist will come into power and they will wage war against Christ. So after the ten kings and after the Antichrist comes into power, verse 44 says that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It will break into pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it will stand forever. Christ's reign will be eternal. It will be a kingdom established by God, unlike the kingdoms that are created by men. Do not make the mistake of thinking that the 1,000-year reign of Christ is all that there is to the kingdom. His kingdom will be eternal. and The first part of his kingdom will be for a 1,000 years on the old earth after the second coming, but will continue on into eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. This is the great promise of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7.16, where we read, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Do not make the mistake of thinking that the Roman Catholic Church is the fulfillment of the kingdom of Christ. And do not make the mistake of saying that the kingdom of Christ is happening right now that it is some sort of spiritual kingdom, that the kingdom of Christ is just Christ ruling and reigning in our hearts right now within the church of Christ, that the church of Christ and the teachings of Christ overthrew the Roman Empire. First of all, let me just say, that's not even historically accurate. The Roman Empire lasted hundreds of years after Christ came. The Roman Empire fell because of its own internal decay, because of the invaders from the north. Remember, this statue represents the Gentile, political control over the nations, especially Israel. If this spiritual kingdom is ruling and reigning right now, you'd be hard-pressed to make the argument that the true church of Jesus Christ is in control of the world politically. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, Scripture is quite clear that the kingdom of Christ will be a literal kingdom. In all of the prophecies of Christ's first coming, they were fulfilled literally, And the only honest conclusion that can be made from Scripture if you don't allegorize or spiritualize the text is that the second coming of Christ will be fulfilled literally. And just applying a literal interpretation to Daniel 2, the other kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, the Roman Empire, these were all literal, physical kingdoms. The kingdom of Christ, it will not be destroyed. It will not be replaced by another kingdom. And there's absolutely no scriptural justification for taking an allegorical approach to these passages regarding the second coming of Christ. Verse 44 is describing the return of Jesus Christ to rule on the earth. The mountain that was referred to in verse 35 and here again in verse 45 is a reference to the rule of Christ that will take over the earthly human governments. His kingdom will rule the earth. Keep in mind that the Babylonians called their chief god Marduk the great mountain. They believed that their gods came from the sacred mountain of the earth, the mountain that they called the mountain of the lands. Even their pagan temples in Babylon were intended to be imitations of mountains. So in their line of thinking, a mountain represented deity. Because of this Babylonian mindset, God purposely portrayed his future kingdom as a stone cut out of a mountain and as a stone that becomes a great mountain. This was God's way of getting Nebuchadnezzar to understand that the divine kingdom would come from God, not from man. To keep Nebuchadnezzar from jumping to the conclusion that this final kingdom would be set up by the Babylonian gods. Daniel made it clear that the God of heaven would establish it. 
Now, this final kingdom would not be another attempt by man to rule on earth apart from God. Now, the rock is a very common metaphor in Scripture that represents Jesus Christ. And we see this in Zechariah 3, 9, 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8, Isaiah 8, 14, Isaiah 28, 16, and Psalm 118, verse 22. Now, the stone filled the entire earth because Christ's reign, it will not just be over part of the earth, but will be over the entire earth. Revelation 11.15 proclaims, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The image of the stone destroying the statue, it conveys to us the idea that it will strike the statue with a sudden and decisive blow. And certainly this is what we see in Revelation 19.15, that the enemies of Christ will be killed just by the spoken word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Revelation 19. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Daniel ends the interpretation by telling the king in verse 45 that the dream and interpretation was from God. It was a glimpse of the future. God had given Nebuchadnezzar the dream. God had given Nebuchadnezzar control over Babylon. God had given Nebuchadnezzar a young man by the name of Daniel to interpret the dream and actually be able to tell the king his dream so that Nebuchadnezzar would know the dream was accurate. Remember the thinking of the Gentile nations in that day. It was believed that no kingdom could conquer another unless its God was more powerful than the God of the nation they were conquering. The truth that the God of heaven will conquer all the Gentile nations indicates the power and might of our God. And take a look at our last four verses, starting with verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering, an incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. King Nebuchadnezzar had these dreams repeatedly. It was pretty obvious. This was a terrifying dream, and it had to be frustrating that no one could tell him what it meant. Along comes Daniel, who interpreted by the power of God everything in great detail. Clearly, Daniel had done something that everyone else had considered impossible. So in verse 46, the king falls on his face, laying prostrate on the ground. This itself was pretty amazing for a king to do something like this, especially considering that Daniel was someone who was taken captive as a prisoner. By bowing to Daniel, bowing to someone else in their culture was a sign of deep respect. So I would not take this that Nebuchadnezzar was worshiping Daniel in verse 46 with the incense and the offering, because verse 47 makes it clear to us that Nebuchadnezzar was quite impressed with Daniel's God. I think what we have is Nebuchadnezzar honestly humble before the God of the Jews. And in Nebuchadnezzar's understanding of things, this was his way of worshiping or humbling himself before the God that Daniel represented. Verse 47 makes it obvious that Nebuchadnezzar realizes Daniel's God was superior to the false gods of Babylon because he states that Daniel's God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords. 
Daniel's God was able to tell him things of the future, which none of the false gods were able to do. Lord of Kings meant that Nebuchadnezzar recognized the fact that Daniel's God was sovereign over the kings of the world. There's nothing in this text that indicates Nebuchadnezzar was willing at this point to abandon the gods of Babylon, but he was making some progress because he recognized Daniel's God as the most powerful God. And out of his gratitude towards Daniel, he gave Daniel gifts. Notice that verse 48 states that he gave him many great gifts. The idea in this text is that not only were the gifts great in number, but they were very expensive as well. So Daniel here is moving up on the social ladder. Daniel was probably now more on the wealthy end of things. He went from being a lowly captive to becoming a wealthy ruler. Nebuchadnezzar promoted Daniel. Keep in mind, this is all a result of the king keeping his word back in verse 6, that whoever could interpret the dream would receive gifts, rewards, and great honors. Babylon was organized into provinces, and the king made Daniel in charge of the province where the king was located. That way, not only could he be in charge of the province, but Daniel could also be in charge of the wise men. So Daniel was moving up pretty fast within the government because being the chief administrator over the wise men meant that you were consulted in the most important cases by the most important leaders. Whatever you said was normally followed because the people considered that the advice was coming directly from God. Then we see that Daniel makes a request to the king. Daniel petitioned to have his three friends appointed. And the text states that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. This meant that Daniel was in charge of the province and his three friends were there to help him. They were placed under Daniel's authority in the province that he ruled. The last phrase in verse 49 says that Daniel sat in the gate of the king. You need to keep in mind that in ancient times the city gates were the place of business. It was also a place for judges and government officials to conduct their business. So after some time, when the kings began to conduct their business within their palaces, the royal court of the king became known as the gate of the king. And the idea here is that in the royal palace of the king is where Daniel served. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego probably served in a different government building. God had clearly answered Daniel's prayer because Daniel, in a short amount of time, went from facing death to being one of the most powerful men on the earth. A very strange but well-documented story comes to us from Prince Edward Island in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, which is just southeast of Quebec, where the news was reported of Charles Coughlin's homecoming. Charles Coughlin was from Prince Edward Island. In the year 1895, he started to travel and wound up at Galveston, Texas. He died there and was buried. In September of the year 1900, a Category 4 hurricane hit Galveston. It was one of the deadliest natural disasters in U.S. history, killing more than 5,000 people. The storm tides were between 8 to 15 feet of water, and the winds were more than 130 miles an hour, which helped to blow the water inland causing massive flooding and washing out the cemetery where Charles was buried. The water swept away the dirt and the coffins which floated out into the Gulf of Mexico. Thirty-five years later, in the year 1935, a floating coffin drifted ashore at Prince Edward Island. As the coffin was examined, they found a plate on it with the name of Charles Coughlin, this same man who had left his Prince Edward Island home all those years before. Now, I'm not sure how this coffin was built, but it stayed afloat all those years, and the wind and the current 
carried the coffin from the Gulf of Mexico for thousands of miles all the way around into the Atlantic Ocean and up the coast to the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Quite the unusual way for a local boy to make his way home. Now the odds of Charles Coughlin ending up back where he started are remarkably slim. But yet it happened. And even more remarkable is that a young Hebrew by the name of Daniel, 600 years before the birth of Christ, could predict the rise and fall of nations with such precision that it led skeptics to believe that it just simply could not be true. But yet it is. Just as remarkable to me is that Jesus is going to make his way back to this earth. According to Acts 1.12, the Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives. And according to Zechariah 14.4, when the Son of God returns, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, splitting the Mount of Olives in two. Zechariah 14.9 teaches us that the day will come when the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Take comfort and encouragement from the promise of God that just as all of the prophecies of Christ's first coming to earth were fulfilled literally, so will be the prophecies of the second coming of Christ. As we close our time together, we remember the words of Peter in 2 Peter 3, where he taught that we should be looking for and hastening the coming day of God as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word 